the hard shoulder on Newstalk with Nissan subscribe and drive no deposit no compromise no fuss find out more at nissan.ie you're very welcome back to the hard shoulder Kieran Cudahy with you until seven o'clock this evening and I'm delighted to say that joining me this week for the Thursday interview is the author the playwright and the columnist with the New European newspaper Bonnie Greer Bonnie you're very welcome to the show it's good to talk to thank you thank you Kieran. great to be here thank you uh, you are a, a, a citizen of the UK uh, no less than an officer of the order of the British Empire um, yes you received the honour from Prince Charles interestingly that is not the first time Prince Charles appeared as a, a character in the, the play of your life. <laughs> no, that's true, Kieran, actually. Um, uh, my mother and the Queen, who was the Duchess of Edinburgh, were, were uh, uh, being mothers for the first time. And my mom, being a, you know, a poor young African-American woman, and her, she and dad were living in a, a shared house in one room that was their house, their space. And dad worked, uh, you know, sweeping floors at the factory. And there was this contest in the hospital I was meant to be born in, in November of 1948. And it was the first person who gave birth on the same day as the then Princess Elizabeth did, Mm. would have a free year worth of, you know, diapers, nappies. Well, my parents were poor. My mother was like, why? We're going for that. So she tried and she tried and I didn't come. Uh, And so Charles was born on the 14th of November, 1948. And I was born something like 36 hours later, something the 16th. And so my mother told me, I think I was about, she named me Bonnie because I guess when he was born, Everybody called him Bonnie Prince Charlie. So that name was uh, Bonnie, got to be a really popular name for girls. So like five years later, a very precocious five-year-old, my mother puts this cake, little cake with candles in front of me, like two days before my birthday. And I said, Mama, what, what's this? She said, you're going to remember this person. I said, who? Prince Charles. You don't know anything about him, but you just keep him in your mind because... You, if you were born the same day as him, we would have had all of this, these services. So <laughs> I'm never going to let you forget this guy. And so here I am, like two days later, and I'm thinking, who the heck is this guy? So, um, and then as I got older, I, you know, he started appearing in the press and stuff, and I, I realized who he was. So I thought, so this was my, my mother's revenge birthday present. That it it's incredible to think of a family in the south side of Chicago celebrating Prince Charles's birthday. Well, <laughs> listen, I tell you, even, even more, even more, I guess, horrible, is that my mother had my sister, my second sister, in 1953, and her name is Regina, and that was the coronation year. So my mom was a uh, African American working class South Side of Chicago royalty person as a lot of Americans are. I and was she was she a royalty <laughs> person in the, the celebrity sense? Yeah. She I just, mean because you know as an yeah. American you don't know anything else do you? I mean people talk about the queen they don't know anything about the royal family. You know it's all black celebs but born celebs so they like it. Did you ever tell Prince Charles about that? I did. What was his reaction? Well I was uh, at the British Museum and I was used to be deputy chair there, and Camilla was next to him, 
and Camilla is, um, um, I guess she's like two years old, year older than Charles. Anyway, Charles is like shaking my hand, and um, and I said to him, I was named after you, and his face, he he was like completely astounded, and Camilla laughed so hard that I think they had to get her a glass of water or something. <laughs> I mean, he was standing there. He just didn't know what, you know, he didn't know what to say. But uh, he's a good guy, so it's good. I, I mentioned the south side of Chicago where you spent your early years. Can you describe your life there to me? Well, I was born uh, on the south side of Chicago in uh, in in a, in a hospital we lived in. Um, my mother and father and me shared our first, my first year in their bed in a shared house. Um, mommy had to go and, um, do my, my milk. They did a thing called formula in those days, which I guess was canned milk and stuff on a shared, um, um, stove. And my uncle, my late uncle told me that my first word was after mom and daddy was rat hole. So I have a real phobia <laughs> about rats. And um, and then they moved to um, another space. My dad I shared, bought a share in an apartment. It was like a small sort of mansion house or block or something on the west side of Chicago with my uncle and his sister, my, my father's sister. And we lived in one part of that. And my my parents kept us behind the fence in this lovely garden uh, because our neighborhood was a big gang neighborhood at the end of the fifties, early sixties. Uh, it was, it was really rough. And uh, I was mugged uh, going to get my mother cigarettes. She needed her cigarettes. I was, milk money was taken. Um, but, but we had this incredible garden. So, I would be in the backyard, as we called it, and there was a Greek statue in it because this was an old Victorian mm. uh, house that 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 they'd sold. But but I'll tell you this other thing: it was crazy. Uh, we lived next door to this single mom and her two kids, who were the same age as us, and we played with them. And um, one day, this sort of pink panel truck showed up to her house. It was pink. And it said muddy waters across it. And my mother was quite, you know, she was, she was very, I wouldn't say snobbish, but she she said, oh, what an ugly name. So, you know, <laughs> we're in, I'm on the back porch and he's on the other side on the back porch and he's serenading her solo. And now, you know, I'm like, what, seven? That doesn't mean anything to me. It's just this guy named Muddy Waters, right? So mm-hmm. I'm a, I remember when I was, when I, I was in Kilburn, it called County Kilburn in those days in the, in the 80s. And I mentioned to somebody that, I, that I, I lived next door to one of Muddy Waters' girlfriends, and he used to come over and serenade her. The entire pub stopped talking. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it, so that, that was, that was, so the strange things in my life, actually. It, it, I suppose it's, it's impossible maybe to a degree to talk about 
your life during that period without mm. mentioning race. If, if I had spoken mm. to you back then or any mm. of your contemporaries and I asked mm. you, what do you imagine the life of your white equivalent is like in Chicago? What, what would you have, how would you have described it? Well, you know, I grew up on television, you know, like this generation, the the Gen Zs growing up with their devices. I, you know, we were the first media generation. I grew up on television. I was stuck in front of a television at the age of three, babysat by television. Everything was television. And I would have said, if you saw a program like um, Leave it to Beaver about this little guy who lived in um, a house with a mom who had an apron. Dad went out. He had a suit on, a hat. He went to work. He drove to work. They had a dog. They had a nice little safe life. That's what I would have thought most white kids. Of course, they didn't, but that's what I thought. And at what point were you cured of that misconception? Um, I think when I started to really get active in the anti-war and black power movement in my late teens, when I started living or staying a lot on the north side of Chicago, which then was equivalent to, I suppose, any bohemian area in any major city and lots of different people were there. And I got to meet white people who came from different circumstances who were poor. And I I didn't know anything like that. That wasn't my experience. And, you know, people who um, their dads weren't with them. My dad was with us, but people's fathers weren't with them, which was a real hardship for family because, of course, the father was the main breadwinner. And so I would say pretty close to almost being 20 years old. If you're just tuning into The Hard Shoulder, Bonnie Greer is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. If we could skip ahead in time a little bit, Bonnie, actually, to 1986. You, you visit Scotland as part of a production at the Edinburgh Festival and ultimately you stay in Scotland. That that becomes your home. The UK becomes your home. I'm interested in that, like, what, what does that tell you about your own personality type, that you could visit another country and then just stay there, put down roots? Um, well, first of all, that, you know, it, I was just talking to uh, a, a friend of mine, close friend, who's also African-American. She lives in Brussels. She works in Brussels. She's a Belgian citizen. And there's like a wave right now, Karen, that's going on in America where young black Americans, African-Americans are saying they're going to move. They're going to expat. They're going to leave. I guess most of them are going to come to Europe because there's always a dream about Paris for African-Americans. But that's a very American thing to do. It it makes me laugh. I mean, no other people except refugees in a desperate strait would say, well, I'm just going to pack up and leave. I mean, most people don't say that Americans do. And that's the most American thing um, is, you know, Americans, we think we can do it. and you know, that's the outrageousness of us. And also, I guess, what we are as well. Um, I, I, It never entered my mind that I couldn't live in the United Kingdom. Uh, of course, I found out that it wasn't that easy, but it just didn't enter my mind. 
So that's the American part, and that's what being an American is. Did you not feel a, a and maybe I'm revealing more about myself in this question, but did, <laughs> did you not feel a, a, like a pull back to home? I'd be someone who'd feel very much like tethered to place. And the further I get away, the tighter that tether becomes. Well, my dad was in this country during World War II as a young serviceman in a segregated army. And he had um, he had an experience here with people who were not people of color that was much more positive for him than what he'd suffered in the United States. And of course, not to make that romantic or glossy, because you have to put that all in relation to what, you know, uh, uh, service people of color serving the British Army and military had to endure. But he didn't know about that. He just knew about the fact that all kinds of people who were white treated him like a person. So for him, this this country, this part of the world, um, was a kind of a haven for mm. him. So I didn't I didn't see it as a haven so much as I just thought, well, I can do it. There was no sense you were running away from anything because I assume that's what. When you talk about there's a lot of black Americans now who do want to leave, is that because mm. they are running away from something? Yes. I mean, it's very, it's exhausting in the United States. Mm. Being a person of color, after all, you're just exhausted. I mean, you just, you know, there's got to be better than that. And I mean, it, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's kind of an American thing to think, you know, I can choose another part of the world that I can go to and I will thrive in it. Um, and I don't think a lot of them realize that until they, till they come here, or they come anywhere, and especially you meet other people of color, and you realize that you are seen as exceptional, even by those people of color, and that's kind of the most shocking thing. And I don't know if a lot of Amer- African Americans actually get to that point where they see that we're kind of privileged in a way. Um, being an African-American is certainly different from being a black Irish person, from being a person born in Ireland uh, who is of African descent. Certainly much different, certainly much different than being that person in uh, Great Britain or France. Mm. Certainly very different. But we, we don't know that because... We are very isolated in the United States. So, but, sorry, Bonnie, to cut what, what do you mean by that? That difference? What do you mean? That, 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 like, what, 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 obviously, the, the experiential difference, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the life you live, but are you talking about mm-hmm. something more than that? Yes, I'm talking about how we're treated. I mean, I'm in the 80s, I was in rooms, and I'm a playwright. I've never, I was on, on the stage once for my sins, and I'm sure that that will not be a, an experience anybody wants to go through again. And, I um I was sort of groomed to be an actor, uh, and I was told by big agents there were no black actresses in Britain, and I knew, I know women who were actors. I thought, what is he talking about? And they would say things in front of me in the 80s that I had to stop them and say, you can't talk about black people like that in front of me, I mean, or with me, what, what, what the, but they didn't see me that way. I wasn't part of it. And you don't really realize that until, you know, you have to take yourself, it's an act of will to take yourself to see it, 
to realize that all these doors are being opened for you at a particular point in time because you're American and because you're not them. And I think it's still true. Could you do it again? Could you leave the country that I suppose you now call home probably? Oh, yeah, I was born to be an expat. Yeah, absolutely. You could leave the UK? Yeah. Where would you go? Um, I'd probably want to find somewhere in Nigeria to live or I probably would go to France. Both of them. Why France? Because, sorry, you mentioned the, the Parisian dream of so mm. many in America as well. What's that about? Um, the literature, uh, the food. Um, they're, they're not so afraid to talk about beauty. Um, I probably would live in Ireland, except I like, you know, I have to find somewhere warm. <laughs> I like, I like warmth. And that's one thing France has is a warm, warm space in warm part of their country. It's warm. But, um, um, I'd have to say that it's the beauty, the French and the Nigerians are not afraid to talk about beauty as a value. And it's very difficult to talk about that in Britain. It's very difficult to expound that in Britain. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. If I can go just full circle, Bonnie, before I let you go, you described uh, a few years ago, writing about your mother as the, the font of your fiction. What did you mean by mm. that? Um, mom, mommy, um, the first time I, I learned anything about vintage film, you know, the golden age of Hollywood was, um, mom used to do our ironing in the afternoon and we came home from school in the afternoons and she had her movies on and I sat there with her while she was ironing and watched all these Betty Davis movies and all these you know, Joan Crawford movies and all these Elizabeth Taylor movies. And, and I didn't, I couldn't, I was too young and to to match up the fact that my mother's sort of housewife, being a mom, being a wife, South South Chicago life, the inside of that was, I mean, she named herself after a character when she was a girl, after a character in a Betty Davis movie, her and her, her best friend. My mother lived in those, in that film, those films. She lived in fiction. She lived in that life. She lived, she had a closet that she kept locked. And one day she gave me the key and I went in. It, I don't even know how she did this. It was filled with clothes, these incredible ball gowns and stuff. I mean, she wasn't, there wasn't anywhere she could go. She had seven kids. She had a husband. She worked all the hours God sent. She, she couldn't go anywhere. But she had this incredibly strong, uh, alive inner life that she was fierce about living. And, uh, and she never shared it with me so much. But those little glimpses, like the movies, like naming me, giving me the Prince Charles cake, you know, the closet, um, making my dress for graduation, which she sort of made into a princess thing, naming her third daughter after, you know, the queen. All of that is part was part of her in her life, which she was she was very fierce about. So she is she is the font of it. 
of my inner life and my fiction and all my creative life is her. Do, do you, did you ever, like you, you mentioned that she kept that from you, maybe that internal life or that mm-hmm. other life she had. That's it. Did, did you ever resent that? No, because um, I was brought up very properly and, and a lot of black kids are. I mean, you keep your mother and your dad at, at a particular space. I mean, you don't intrude on that space. Mm. You don't expect anything um, like uh, being, you know, that they they are in a place. They are above you. They are um, sacred in a way. So I never expected my mother to be anything but my mother, except right toward the end of her life when um, she was just about going into dementia and she couldn't find anything anymore. And I didn't understand why when I brought flowers over, she put them behind the couch instead of her vases, our vases. I thought what was happening. And she looked at me one day with this face that looked like she was about 16 years old. And she said, Bonnie, if anybody asked me, I would say if I had to do it all over again, I would live my life exactly like yours. And I don't think there's a higher accolade that a mother can give a daughter or any of her children than to say that. Well, that is a, a really beautiful way to wrap things up. Bonnie, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kieran. Take care. Bonnie Greer, author, playwright and columnist with the New European Newspaper. That's our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. My thanks to the production team. Off the Ball are up next with live commentary from Ireland's game against Portugal in the Aviva. I'll be back tomorrow from four. Have a good one. (laughs) 